Pastor Reverend Tony Cook, who tonight is going to bless us as he kicks off this series on the Dream Team. Amen. Would you please open your hearts and put your hands together for Reverend Tony Cook. Amen. Go ahead, Thank you, Pastor Tom. Well, good evening, everybody. You just sat down, but let's stand back up. Father, we thank you tonight. We worship and honor you. And we thank you for the wisdom of God that, that came in the person of Jesus and is continually being administered to us by the, by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we just open up our heart to receive uh, more and more of you. Lord, you said in your word that the path of the righteous is like the morning sun. It grows brighter and brighter until the full day. And so, Father, we thank you that our walk with you uh, will not diminish. It will not uh, go off into some kind of sunset. But, Father, we thank you that you're illuminating us brighter and brighter and more fully as, as we continue to grow in you. And thank you for hungry hearts tonight. And thank you for believing hearts, Lord. We, we choose to open our hearts to your word, receive and, and feed upon and, and act upon your word as well. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Um, when God wants to do something in the earth, and how many of you know, we need God to do something in the earth right now. Uh, the devil is certainly, you know, rearing his ugly head everywhere he can possibly express himself. And, you know, the devil expresses himself through people who yield to him. That's how the, the powers of darkness are expressed in the earth, through people that, you know, think like he thinks and act like he acts and cooperate with him. And I'm going to tell you what, God is going to express himself through his people. And, um, but there's four things that happen. There's a very predictable pattern of what happens when God wants to do something in the earth. And I believe it's important for us to begin this by sharing this bit of information. Number one, when God wants to do something in the earth, the very first thing he does is he raises up a leader. He raises up a leader. He starts with an Abraham, uh, even back further, Noah, uh, David, Moses, Gideon, Elijah, Nehemiah, Esther, Deborah. When God wants to do something, he raises up a leader. Someone once said, for God so loved the world that he did not send a committee. And there's a lot of truth to that. All right. So the first thing that God wants to do when he wants to do something in the earth is he raises up a leader. The second thing he does is he gives that leader an assignment. It's very clear in scripture. He tells Noah to build a boat. He tells uh, Abraham, take a journey, you know, go to a place I'll show you. He tells Moses, what was the assignment he gave Moses? Set my people free, you know, get them out of Egyptian bondage, take them to the promised land. Uh, he told David, be a shepherd to my people. He told Nehemiah, what did he tell Nehemiah? Rebuild the broken down walls of the city. When God wants to do something in the earth, number one, he raises up a leader. Number two, he gives the leader an assignment. And then there's a third thing that happens when God wants to do something in the earth. 
And it's just as predictable as the other two. Number one, God raises up a leader. Number two, God gives the leader an assignment. The third thing that happens is the leader panics. That's number three. And it's just as predictable as can be. Uh, Moses said, but God, I, I don't speak very well. Uh, they won't believe me. Who, who will I say sent me? Moses had all these excuses because he didn't think he could do what God told him to do. Uh, not only did Abraham get called, but his wife Sarah got called as well. And when she heard that she was going to have a, you know, a child in her old age, she laughed. And, and, and she just basically said, I'm too old. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah said, I'm too too young. Uh, when God called um, uh, Isaiah to be a prophet, uh, he said, um, well, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, I can't do it because of that. When God called Gideon, how many of you remember the call of Gideon? When God called Gideon, Gideon said, but God, I'm the poorest in my family. And my family is the poorest tribe, poorest family in the entire tribe. And our tribe is the poorest tribe out of all the tribes. He said, I'm the least of the least of the least. You know, when, when Jesus really revealed himself, and this was in conjunction with the calling of Peter, uh, Peter said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Uh, Paul, as he reflected back on his calling, he said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. So all the great leaders of the Bible, when you, if there's enough detail given, uh, you see that when they were called by God and given an assignment by God, that they had a, a kind of a crisis of being overwhelmed, the assignment is too big for me, I'm not worthy of the assignment, that type of thing. So number one, God raises up a leader. Number two, God gives the leader an assignment. Number three, the leader panics. And here's number four. This is the fourth thing that happens when God wants to do something in the earth. God answers. And God's answer is very interesting. God's answer is always twofold, like heads and tails on a coin. There's a spiritual side and a natural side to the coin of God's answer. The first thing that God says, um, we prayed for greater enlightenment, it's coming now. The first, thing, the first thing that God says is the spiritual side, and He says, I will be with you. He, he assures that person of His presence in their life as they go about obeying and cooperating. In other words, God is essentially saying, Moses, you don't have to do this in your own strength. You don't have to do this in the limitations of your own wisdom and skill and ability. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to anoint you. I'm going to give you a supernatural anointing and grace uh, that is going to enable you to do something you could never do in your own natural strength. And you see that communicated in various ways to various leaders. You know, God communicating, I will be with you, I will strengthen you, etc. And then the other side of the coin of God's answer, the natural side of the, of the answer, is God says, and I will give you people to help you. He told Moses right off when Moses said, but God, I, I don't speak very good, I kind of stutter. Um, God said, okay, your brother Aaron will help you. Your brother speaks well. He'll help you. 
And later, we find out that Miriam helped with some of the worship issues, you know, with her tambourine. And um, uh, Joshua helped with the military. And um, the elders helped in giving counsel to the people, ministering to them. Uh, the people who built the tabernacle came alongside and helped. And all through the, the biblical history, here's what we see. God always starts with a leader, but he always finishes with a team. David starts, you know, just a, a young man called by God, but then God begins to bring people into his life like Jonathan. Jonathan came into his life, and then as David got established, God surrounded him by what was called the mighty men of David. Uh, Jesus uh, raised up a team, uh, even though Jesus was kind of the, obviously the head guy, for lack of a better term. It wasn't long before he was delegating and having them do functions and arranging transportation and setting up dinners and rowing the boat and paying the taxes. You know, Jesus built a team, uh, and then he turned everything over to that team. You know, he began doing his work through that team instead of Jesus doing it himself. And then the Apostle Paul, he was a great team builder. You know, God called him to start churches, but it wasn't long before he was surrounding himself with people like Barnabas and Mark and Silas and Timothy and Titus and, and Luke and all these other people. Uh, God always starts with a leader, but he always finishes... With a team. Now, when we look at how, how is the church supposed to function, what do we, where do we look to get an idea of how churches are supposed to function? Do we look at corporate America? Well, we don't really, but at the same time, we do want to be proficient in business. You know, there is a business side of church, and... Um, you know, a lot of the principles that operate in the business world uh, really come from the Bible, if you stop and think about it. Delegation, we learned that back in Exodus chapter 18. Uh, the proper handling of finances, you know, was something that is, is it's supposed to happen in the business world, but it's supposed to happen in the church world too. And you see that in Scripture. So, no, we don't look to corporate America as our ultimate model, but there are some business principles that, that we should be operating in. Uh, do we look to military? You know, do we look to armies and how they operate? Because after all, you know, we are the soldiers, you know, uh, of the Lord and, you know, spiritual warriors and so on. Well, you know, there are some things we can learn from military discipline and things of that nature. But no, we don't look ultimately to the military. Uh, what about the family? You know, I think we could all say, well, maybe the family might be a model that we could look to because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we? And, you know, things of that nature. But, you know, when people come out of very dysfunctional families, you know, they're hoping, man, I hope the church is healthier than the family I came out of. You know, so, yeah, there are some things, you know, if a family functions in a healthy manner, there are certainly some parallels there. But I want to propose something, even though I think we can learn a few things from the business world. I think we can learn a few things from military disciplines and so on. 
you know, Paul even used those illustrations about, you know, any man that, you know, wars, you know, does not entangle himself with the affairs of life. We're told to put on the full armor of God. So there are a few illustrations that are drawn from natural military things. But I want to propose tonight that our ultimate model of how we do church and how we relate to one another is not corporate America. It's not the military. It's not even the natural family, although I think we can learn some things from all of those things. I want to propose to you that the ultimate model of teamwork that we, the church, are supposed to model after and emulate is nothing less than the Trinity. No one less than the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And I want you to look in your Bibles with me, and I think this will be up on the screen as well, at John chapter 17. Because this is a very powerful prayer that Jesus prayed. And what I want you to know right up front is that Jesus prayed this prayer for you. Jesus prayed this prayer for me. He prayed this prayer for us. And because He prayed this prayer for us, it's very important that we really look at it very carefully and ask ourselves, what was Jesus really saying here? In John 17, 20, Jesus, of course, is surrounded by His immediate disciples, but He says, I do not pray for these alone. Meaning, I'm not just praying this for Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew. I'm not just praying this for my immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe. What tense is that? Future tense. I'm praying this for all those who will believe in me through their word. So this this prayer was not a time-restrained prayer for those in Jesus' immediate presence. This was actually a trans-chronological or a trans-generational prayer. Jesus was praying this prayer for people who would believe in Him in the future. Now, using this as a point of reference time-wise, how many of you believe in Jesus somewhere in the future from this point in time? All of us. So say this out loud. Jesus prayed specifically for us. What did He pray? That they, that's us, that they all may be one. Can we say unified? That they all may be one or that they may be unified as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. Now, if we just stop and look at this statement, what Jesus is praying is that our unity will be like the unity of the Father and the Son. Jesus didn't just pray, I pray that they'll be one. He said, I pray that they will be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one or unified in us. 
Why? What will be the result of that? That the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory, look at verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Notice Jesus repeats it again. Jesus wants our unity to be like what? The unity that Jesus and the Father shared. Now, I'm going to challenge us to think even a little bit further. Think beneath the surface here. Do you see in these verses the name of the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit's name mentioned? But let me ask you this question. Is the Holy Spirit in any way, shape, or form a part of this prayer? Even though His name is not mentioned. Why do we know that? Because two things. Number one, we know that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus lived His life, did His ministry out from under the inspiration and anointing. So even though the Holy Spirit's name is not mentioned, I would propose that He is just as much a part of this prayer as Jesus and the Father are. It's His nature to work behind the scenes. So if that is true, then what Jesus is praying when He says in verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Could we say that that would also be able to be translated, that they may be a team just as we are a team. Personally, I'm okay with that. Because I believe there is teamwork amongst the members of the Trinity. I think without being disrespectful in any way, shape, or form, I, I like the idea of team Trinity. In case you're wondering if you have theological training, I believe in all the ancient creeds of the church. When it, I believe in the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed. You know, I believe the, the orthodox traditional beliefs of the Trinity. There, there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost being co-equal and co-eternal. But I see in this prayer, and I see in... Just the overall operation of how all through Scripture, how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost operate, that there is an amazing unity amongst the Trinity. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, we have many members in one body. One body, many members. In the Trinity, you have one God three persons. You have both unity and plurality in the Trinity. You have both unity and plurality in the Trinity. Jesus' prayer was that we would be one even as He and the Father, and I believe that includes the Holy Spirit as well, that our unity would be like the unity of the Trinity. I believe that unity is a functional unity. I don't believe it just means they sit there and have harmonious thoughts toward one another. I believe they really function 
in a unified form. Let me give you an example of what I believe. I believe that what Scripture teaches is that the Father has distinct responsibilities and roles within the concept of the Trinity, as does the Son, as does the Spirit. Each member of the Trinity fulfills different roles and responsibilities and exhibit unparalleled respect and love toward one another. Here's how I believe the general pattern is. Number one, the Father plans. The Father plans. He is the source, the authority. The Father plans. Number two, the Son performs. He executes and carries out the Father's plan. Number three, the Holy Spirit perfects. He comes along afterwards and brings to full perfection that which the Father planned and that which the Son performed. Let me show you a few scriptures that deal with the, the seamless and the flawless unity of the Trinity, how well they work in and amongst one another's mutually significant activities. In the Annunciation, where the angel appeared, uh, Gabriel appeared and told Mary that she would be uh, the mother of the Christ child. Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says, And the angel answered and said to her, Who? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest, that's the Father, will overshadow you, therefore... Also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Do you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working perfectly there? Do you notice there's no jealousy, there's no competition, um, they're not jockeying for position, um, they're just perfect cooperation. Another great verse about Jesus' ministry, Acts 10.38, says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Well, right there you see the Trinity. How God, that's a reference to the Father, anointed Jesus, that's a reference to the Son, with the Holy Spirit and power, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the devil, and so on. What about Jesus' prayer in John chapter 14 and verse 16 and 17? John 14, 16, and 17, it says, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father. Well, there's Jesus and the Father. And He will give you another helper. Who do you think the helper is? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard it taught that in the church we have what is called the ministry of helps? What does the ministry of helps do? Are they, are they out front? Are they super highly visible? No, the ministry of helps tends to be behind the scenes. They don't draw a lot of attention to themselves. The ministry of helps really is there to facilitate the plan that comes from higher authority, right? So ministry of helps works behind the scenes doesn't draw a lot of attention to itself 
and is there to facilitate the perfecting of what those in authority have planned. Do you know the reason that we have helps ministry in the, in the church, in the body of Christ, is because there is a helps minister in the Trinity? What does the, what does the, the divine helper do? He works behind the scenes. He doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. And he's there to perfect that which is ordained by higher authority. I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth is what verse 17 says. Even the spirit of truth. What about the great commission? The great commission, Matthew 28, 19. It says... Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we have this great statement. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now, those are just a quick sampling in our book. We list many, many others all through the New Testament where you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit just working together in perfect harmony. Um, they, they are distinct personages, but they are one in essence and one in purpose. Now, there's an element of the Trinity that is way beyond my intellectual ability to comprehend or explain. So I'm not here claiming to know everything about the Trinity, but I believe what I see in Scripture. And what I see in Scripture is there is one God who exists in three persons, and these three uh, have this phenomenal unity, but they each have distinct roles. The Father what? The Father plans, the Son performs, and the Spirit perfects. Let me give you a couple of examples of this tonight. Um, if I were to ask you the question, who is your Redeemer? Who is your Redeemer? Say it real loud. Jesus. Now, uh, once again, who is your Redeemer? Jesus. Jesus. Now, let me just tell you this. I agree with you 1,000%. Jesus is our Redeemer, isn't He? We all believe that. We all agree that. But let me ask you this question. Does the Father have anything to do with your redemption? Yes. Okay, but nobody said the Father. You all said Jesus. Yes. Let me ask you this. Does the Holy Spirit have anything to do with your redemption? Yes. yes. But you didn't say the Holy Spirit. You said Jesus. Jesus. Now, if I was to speculate as to why you said Jesus, it's because we understand this, that Jesus came... In human, as a human, the Word was made flesh, and in His person, He took upon Himself the punishment and the penalty of our sins on where? On the cross. He shed His blood, and He died for us, for our sin, for our redemption. Uh, he didn't stay dead, did He? He rose from the dead. And He's alive. Um, he is our, uh, not just Savior on the cross, but He's our advocate in heaven. Uh, he's our intercessor. He's our uh, coming King. 
And so we say that Jesus is our Redeemer because He's the one that actually came and, and did the work, right, of redemption. So I'm not saying anybody's wrong in what you said at all because Jesus is our Redeemer. But we all agreed that the Father had something to do with it. Yes. What, what, what did Jesus make so plain on this earth? I did not come to do my will. What did he say in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. Uh, he said things like, uh, I, I, uh, the words I speak are not mine, but I just say what I hear my father saying. Uh, he, Jesus said, the works that I do are my, not mine, but it's the father in me doing the works. We even saw where uh, Jesus did his works by the power of the Holy Spirit, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. So Jesus, here's what my point is, Jesus is our Redeemer, but Jesus is not an independent agent. Jesus was here representing God the Father. And he was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. So, could we say that God the Father planned it? And God the Son came and performed it? And then, after the resurrection, in particular, who showed up on the day of Pentecost? He came to perfect it. Or I like to say it this way, the Holy Spirit came to make application into our lives of what Jesus had purchased on the cross. And it took each and every member of the Trinity doing His part. See, what would have happened if God the Father had sent Jesus, Jesus came and He did die on the cross and He did rise from the dead? What would have happened on the day of Pentecost if the Holy Spirit had looked over at God the Father and Jesus in heaven and said, you know what, guys? I don't want to go. I don't want to go down there. What would have happened? Jesus' death on the cross would have ultimately become meaningless to us because it takes the Holy Spirit to apply those benefits to our life and our heart and make us new creatures. So it took God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost working together. Now, let me ask you another question. So in redemption, God the Father planned it, God the Son performed it, and God the Holy Spirit perfects it in our lives, right? We're clear on that. Let me ask you another question. Uh, Creation. The creation of this universe. Who created the universe? Now we got you thinking. You're, you're thinking too hard. Okay, let me, let me rephrase it this way. You're, you're trying to get, get ahead of me here and figure out all these angles. If you were to walk down the street and you find Mr. Average Christian... And you say, hello, Mr. Average Christian. Who created the universe? What is he going to say? He's going to say God, period. He's not going to get into any intricacies of divisions of responsibilities within the triune Godhead or anything like that. So, So on redemption, we would say Jesus, because we can easily see that Jesus did redemption. But on creation, we give a, a broader less distinct answer and we just say God 
But if what I'm saying is correct, if this pattern holds true, God the Father planned it, Jesus the Son did it, and the Holy Spirit perfects it, perfected it. Now, if we go back, and I don't have time to go into all these scriptures, but um, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh. So we know that the Word is Jesus. Now in John chapter 1 verse 3 It says all things were created by Him. So Jesus is called specifically the the member of the Godhead that did the work of creation. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, I didn't give them these scriptures, but in Colossians 1 16, it says, talking specifically about Jesus, it says, for by Him... All things... Oh, they've got it up already. Good job. Look at verse 16. This is talking about Jesus. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. So Jesus... According to these two scriptures, John chapter 1 verse 3 and uh, Colossians 1 16, there's another verse that states it very explicitly in Hebrews 1. All these verses say that Jesus himself was the creator. Now it's obviously before he became human, before he became man, but the pre-existent Christ. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and let's look at something kind of interesting here. What was the actual methodology that God used in creation? Did He create everything uh, by flicking His finger? Um, He created everything by His Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word was made flesh. So there we've got some corroborating scripture indicating that God's pattern in Genesis, that when God created, He did it by speaking. Jesus is the Word. So, if the Word created everything, which the Bible says happened, then the Word, Jesus, is the Creator. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many of you believe that happened? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if God creates something, how's it going to be? It's going to be good. But look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void and what? And darkness was on the face of the earth or on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And from here you begin a process of all kinds of things being said. 
why after God created everything, now there's some complex theories that I'm not going to get into about this. So if you're a deep student of this, I know the theories you're thinking of right now. I'm not getting into this at 8.18 on Wednesday night. But why would God create everything in verse 1, and then all of a sudden in verse 2, it's a mess. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. But it's interesting, and the Spirit of God was hovering. Mm -hmm. Hadn't been perfected yet. There was a... Let me ask you this question. People say, why would God create something and yet it's not perfect yet? How many of you are a new creation in Christ Jesus? Yeah, think about that. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. How many of you are born of God? Let's just say it was ten years ago that you got born again. Ten years ago, you were in total darkness. You're, you know, you were at enmity with God. Um, you were without hope and without God in the world. Uh, you were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. And all of a sudden, you heard the gospel, you repented, and you said, Jesus, I give you my life. I turn from my sin. I come to you. I put my faith in you. And you became what? Born again. You became a new creature, a new creation. Who, who made you a new... Did you recreate yourself? No, God made you a new creation and yet, how was your mind after that? Did, were you totally, did you have your mind completely renewed and have all your attitudes and all your priorities? And No, even though you got born again and even though your spirit man was born again, what about your, your mind and what about your flesh? Was that still kind of a mess? So you were a new creation, but there was still kind of some messy stuff. And what did the Holy Ghost do when you were a born-again mess? Did He run away from you because you were a mess? Or has He, from the moment you were born again, continued to hover over your life with His life-giving influence to bring into perfection that which God ordained for your life. So aren't you glad the Spirit of God doesn't run away from darkness? Now theologians call this point in time uh, chaos. And so you have a creation, then you have a chaos... And then you have a continuing work of perfection taking place. I can understand Genesis 1 through 3 in the context of my own personal life. But when I look at the mechanics, when I look at the specifics of how God did it, God the Father planned it. God the Word, God the Son created it. But then God the Holy Spirit was there to perfect it. So stop and think about this for a minute. We have this triune God. We don't have three gods. We have one God. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, and three persons within one Godhead. I know that's a mystery, but it, it's what the Bible pretty much makes clear. And there's someone who plans, there's someone who performs, and there's someone who perfects. And the planning, performing, and perfecting operates with such seamless unity. Another way of saying it, not just plan, perform, and perfect. Another way to say it is authority, action, and application. And when each member of the Trinity functions the way he is designed to function, what you have is the perfect will of God being done. But what's amazing is that Jesus' prayer was, Father, I pray that they will be one even as we are one. Let me give you some of the traits. If we're going to operate like the Trinity operates, here are some thoughts. Each member of the Godhead contributes and produces. Every member of Team Trinity is fully invested in the process and the goal. No member of the Trinity is a spectator or observer. Everyone has a role and a function. There is no jealousy, strife, or discord. No member possesses a secret personal agenda. Their work is seamlessly interdependent upon each other. And it truly was, long before the three musketeers picked up the theme, it truly was one for all and all for one. The Father plans. He is the architect and the source of divine activity. The Son performs. He executes and carries out the Father's plan. And the Holy Spirit perfects. He follows up and brings into reality that which the Father ordained and that which the Son carried out. Wouldn't it be amazing if somebody could come into a church and look at that church and say, you know what, every member of that church is fully invested in the process and the goal. There are no spectators or observers. Everybody in that church has a function and a role. There is no strife, jealousy, discord uh, in that church. No member possesses a secret agenda. They work together seamlessly and interdependently upon one another. And the, mem the motto of people in that church is one for all and all for one. That's what people would say about us if we ever achieved to that level of the Trinity. The unity of the Trinity. Now, has any local church ever done that? Probably not. But isn't it a nice thing to work for? It's what Jesus prayed for us. Now, just in case, I wanted to share with you some thoughts from some people in history in case you may be thinking, Tony, I've never heard this before. I, this is, what did you eat before you got this sermon? <laughs> Let me share with you a few thoughts from some great uh, scholars and theologians throughout church history. Uh, first of all, there was a gentleman that lived in the 300s, uh, Basil of Caesarea. And he said this, he said, every divine action, do we have that slide? Every divine action begins from the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is completed in the Holy Spirit. 
That's a guy that said that back in the 300s. Uh, there was a Puritan, you know, the Puritan preachers. A lot of them had some wonderful insights. Thomas Manton, uh, a Puritan minister, said this. He said, the beginning of our salvation is from God the Father. The dispensation is from the Son. Don't let that word dispensation, don't let that throw How many of you have ever been to a vending machine? What does a vending machine do? It dispenses something. So the dispensing means the actual production of it. The dispensation from the Son and the application from the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Oswald Sanders, who wrote the great book, uh, Spiritual Leadership, said this. He said, the unity of the Godhead was unmarred by discord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delight to honor one another. I and my Father are one, Jesus claimed, implying they were not only one in essence, uh, but also in attitude and purpose. The persons of the Trinity cooperated for our redemption in perfect harmony and reciprocity. The Father planned. The Son made the plan possible of realization by yielding up His life to death on the cross. The Spirit bent His fiery energies to the implementation. That's another word, application, perfection, to the implementation of the plan. It was His appreciation of this harmony that inspired our Lord to pray for His followers that they may be one as we are. And then one of my favorite quotes on this whole topic is from a minister named Sam Storms. And he said, God created us so that the joy he has in himself might be ours. God doesn't simply think about himself or talk to himself. He enjoys himself. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard a preacher say, now, God was lonely. And because God was lonely, he decided to create man so he'd have somebody to interact with. Have you ever heard that? Listen, God was not lonely. God has never been lonely. God has never had a need. Uh, let's go back to that Sam Storms quote. If we can bring that back up, um, uh, I'll read it here. Uh, it says, he doesn't just, he doesn't simply uh, think about himself or talk to himself. He enjoys himself. He celebrates with infinite and eternal intensity the beauty of who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've been created to join the party. We've been created to join the party. What I want you to know tonight is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost have operated as they operate from eternity past. And what the, what the New Testament does is it shows us how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit function. And then Jesus, before he leaves, prays that you and I, as the body of Christ, will begin to function the way they function, the way the Trinity functions. 
Now, if I can tell you this, the more we are like them in their unity, the more that they intermesh with and are interwoven into our work. See, if we have strife and disunity in our midst, the Trinity doesn't work with strife and disunity. So we grieve the Holy Spirit. But when we operate in the kind of unity that the Trinity operates in, notice that Jesus didn't just pray that we would be one like them, but that we would be one in them. Are you getting that? In other words, the more we operate in unity, the more His presence tabernacles and is, is expressed and is manifested in and through us. So that's the beginning lesson. That's the opening lesson on your place on God's dream team. This is Jesus' prayer. This has been called the only unanswered prayer of Jesus. And my prayer is that as you dive into this study, that you will learn more and more about the different attributes and characteristics that will enable each and every one of us to really function with one another in the same kind of unity that the Trinity operates in. And what that's going to do is just help us to step up higher and higher and higher into the things of God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for Heart of the Bay. And I thank you for great leaders here. Not only pastors Mark and Brenda, but I thank you for every person that's in authority. Every person that carries responsibilities. And Father, I pray that you'll help Heart of the Bay to have strong authority, strong action, strong application. That, that planning will reflect the heart of Father God. That, that everything that is carried out and performed will reflect the heart of Jesus. And as it is applied, as it is perfected in application and implementation, that it will reflect the beauty of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that we will be one even as you are one with Jesus and the Holy Ghost.